I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Well, welcome, everybody. Trade guy Bill Reinch here. We are without Andrew uh, this week, but we have a special guest, and that is Greg Poling, who is the director of the CSIS Southeast Asia program. And Greg is here because this is Asia Week. For those of you that haven't noticed, we had the IPEF Summit, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity Summit, on Monday and Tuesday. We had President Biden Biden meeting with Xi Jinping on uh, Wednesday, and the APEC Summit uh, will be at the end of the week. So big Asia events, and today's topic is going to be about Asia. We're going to begin with IPEF, because that was the thing that didn't roll out first. The bottom line is that they have essentially finished the three commerce pillars, which is pretty much what we and everybody else has been predicting. But the trade pillar has kind of imploded, and we'll spend a little bit of time discussing that. Uh, I would just say, for me, this was a kind of a classic case of of reality meeting uh, idealism along the way. The administration had great ideas, but I think they're in the process of discovering that, you know, most people look at trade pragmatically. Is it going to bring in more money? Is it going to bring in more exchange of more goods and services? The trade pillar discussion was about what's in it for us. And it's sounding a little bit like the other countries decided there wasn't much in it for them. So that one is not finished clearly. They seem to have done some things, but even their suggestion last week privately that they would announce an early harvest, which was ironic because this is two years into it. So it's not early uh, under uh, any basis, but I don't, they haven't done that. So there may not be any harvest at all. So Greg, why don't we start with you? Why don't you give us your thoughts on IPEF? Yeah, I'm happy to. And thanks to both you and Scott for having me. I, I had to go back and double check the second episode ever of our Southeast Asia radio podcast a year and a half ago was a crossover with you two to talk about the launch of IPEF. <laughs> So here we are again, trying to leech some of your much larger following uh, from the Trade Guys podcast. This, as you said, it, it was, I suppose, disappointing, but not at all surprising to find out that rather than have a set of early harvest deliverables on half of Pillar 1, they've decided to just not have anything yet on Pillar 1. I mean, my reading then is without Pillar 1, if we look at what they did announce on Pillar 2 and Pillar 4, the clean economy and the fair economy, plus this overall agreement on the IPEF, they've agreed to set up a bunch of vehicles to have future discussions and pursue perhaps minilateral efforts through all of these. And in that sense, it's just another club. It's another grouping with a different, slightly different membership, overlapping in many ways with the membership of APEC, working on a couple things that APEC, in fact, does work on, including a lot of the green economy stuff and the anti-corruption stuff, and a couple issues that APEC doesn't work on, which is supply chains and taxation. But that can be positive. But this is not a trade agreement, as far as I can tell. 
this is just another economic grouping to talk. It's a cooperation agreement. You're right. The Commerce Department put out a statement uh, following the summit on their pillars. And they're, of course, taking credit because it's their pillars that got done. And USTR's pillar that, that imploded. Basically, uh, what Greg uh, said is, I, I think, is exactly right. They set up a lot of agreements to cooperate, agreements to meet, agreeing, agreements to exchange views, and some institutional structures to enable that, including some that will actually schedule meetings. There's, there's one that they set up on investment that is scheduled for the first meeting already to be in Singapore next year. So there's a little bit of substance to it, but not very much. Yes. And uh, the, I think we're stuck in that mode for at least the trade pillar to be without substance, mainly because of the inconsistencies of views within the president's own party. This is by no means new and tremendous neuralgia among many Democratic groups about trade and and its role in the economy, whether it's good or bad. There are very different views held by, by uh, people who have to, uh, as usual, the Democratic Party's challenge is while they represent more than a half of the American people, they're a collection of groups with internal inconsistencies. And so they have to iron out the internal issues to be able to be the big tent party they actually are. And uh, this has been true for a very long time. Famous Will Rogers said, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. And so that is a common experience, particularly as you get close to elections. Now, it's always been a problem with IPEF because in Asia, what much diplomacy is actually an economic diplomacy. It's, it's, it's trade, it's investment, it's agreements to advance the economy of your partner. And without a market access component, first, there's little, little interest from the pro-trade community, little interest from the business people who attend these meetings and pay careful attention to what leaders say. But there's almost always strife within different factions of the Democratic Party. That's, I think, what we're seeing now. And uh, you can, I guess you can avoid agreement for lots of reasons. In this case, I think it's a missed opportunity to advance what our partners and allies in Asia most want us to do, which is engage with the region. Well, first, in the interest of fair and balanced, uh, the Republicans have their divisions, too. They certainly do. <laughs> I, I, I laughed when I read a Republican House member, I won't mention the name, described referring to the new speaker and described the current situation as, you know, the clown car with a new driver. So things have not changed much there either. However, trade is not that no. big a divisive issue in the Republican Party right True. now. It will, it may be again. Yes. But uh, I think Scott is right. It's the Democrats driving the train um, in the short run. Although there are multiple people to blame and multiple reasons for this that I think we can uh, spend a, a minute on. There were a number of things that didn't happen. The outstanding issues that they were unable to resolve appear to be labor, environment, digital trade, and a number of other things. Other chapters apparently are concluded, but they don't seem at this point uh, prepared to announce them. I think Senator uh, Sherrod Brown of Ohio last week uh, announced his opposition to the whole pillar and said, let's just drop the pillar because it wasn't going to be good enough from his perspective, from a labor point of view. It wasn't going to have USMCA-like enforcement provisions in it, he was afraid, and that caused him to oppose it. You know, there are multiple ironies here. He's opposing it. Of course, 
the administration had already decided it's not going to Congress anyway, so technically he has nothing to say about it, but that didn't stop him from uh, venturing an opinion. He has a tough election race coming up, and I'm sure, and I think that's why uh, people are going to pay attention to what he has to say. At the same time, in talking to the business community, they've been losing interest in the trade pillar as well for the opposite reason, because on digital trade, the administration is beginning to pull back and issues. We've ranted about this before, and I can guarantee you we'll rant about it again in the future on free flow of information, protection of source code, and they have bans on localization of data. The administration is pulling back and rethinking its position. Those were the big things that the business community wanted to get out, not just of IPEF, but out of the WTO joint statement initiative. It's what they got out of Japan in the bilateral agreement. It's what they got in USMCA. Not perfect, but you know uh, more than it looks like they're going to get out of IPEF. So this is another case where the you know, the left and the right are falling away and kind of ganging up on the center, and the center is getting really, really thin. Uh, well, I don't know what to do about it. It's unfortunate timing because if they were listening to the trade guys, what we would recommend is proceed with negotiations and then at the end use what I think you coined as the Speaker Pelosi MCA, USMCA strategy, which is wait till it's concluded and then say it's not good enough. And then, and then come in and fix come it. Come in and yeah. fix it, right. Uh, in, in this case, we're sort of killing it in the crib and saying, gee, that's too bad. This is really unfortunate for me because, you know, a year and a half ago when they launched this, we had debates within CSIS, including with our former colleague, Matt Goodman, about whether or not digital trade by being lumped into Pillar 1 was doomed from the start because if this was a package, you were never going to get agreement from the other parties on binding labor regulations or on environmental regulations without market access. And that's exactly what's happened. I go back a year and a half and say they would have been better off with a separate pillar on digital trade in which we could have actually made some progress. Now, maybe I'm, I was, maybe I overestimated the administration's willingness to actually push digital trade at the time. And I'll concede I, I probably did, but I still think it would have been more likely to get a separate digital trade pillar than it ever was to get this hodgepodge of demands from the U.S. with no U.S. concessions. We discussed that at length back in at the launch, and this was Matt Goodman's position as as well, that the, the thing you ought to focus on what's attainable and what's attainable, he thought, would be a digital agreement. Um, it's an interesting question because at the time it may have been, but uh, now it appears the administration has rethought its digital position. So I don't think we can go back there, even though it's probably, uh, I think, the most important element of the pillar. And I think we're going to end up with nothing on that. It's That's the most likely outcome that you could foresee today. But uh, why don't we talk about the summit between Xi and, and President Biden? So that, that was probably the headline event for most of the non-trade press and uh, readers. Well, they did. Uh, I can comment on that because I took notes. Not that I was there. They did six things. Not big, but not insignificant either. They agreed to cooperate on fentanyl, meaning cracking down on on criminal uh, fentanyl criminal activity, which I think most people would agree was a, is a good thing. And I know I think not as a consequence of this because it was a Wednesday night when Biden and she talked about it. But the next day, the Justice Department and the uh, Italian uh, Revenue Authorities broke up a fentanyl and uh, opioid uh, synthetic opioid smuggling ring. How convenient! From uh, through Piacenza, and it's it was an interesting story. It was fentanyl that was going into 
Ohio, Kentucky, and I think uh, Pennsylvania and West Virginia were the states. And some of it was going through Italy, which is why the Italians were involved. And the ringleader apparently is in Italy and was running the whole show along with his wife and daughter, it turns out. Um, and he had a bunch of Confederates. And then, of course, there were people here. So the American Justice Department and the Italian Guardia di Finanza simultaneously raided and arrested these people and hopefully have put them out of business. But it was all coming from China, some of it directly to the U.S., some of it via Italy. If the Chinese really mean what they say and have agreed to cooperate, and of course, they made a similar commitment to President Obama seven years ago, which turned out not to be effective. So we'll see. But, you know, if they mean it, it'll be important. The other one that I think the government folks will say is the biggest is they agreed to restart military to military dialogues. And I think that's important for avoiding crises, avoiding mistakes. Miscalculations can happen very easily and very, very quickly. So that that would be a good sign. Yeah. And I, I think this is if it's actually implemented is the one that's that's we're going to look back and say mattered most. Mm-hmm. This has been the consistent top priority of the Pentagon. They just released their annual report on China's military a couple of weeks ago, in which they pointed out that uh Chinese aircraft have engaged in unsafe and dangerous intercepts of U.S., Australian, Canadian, or other allied aircraft every two and a half days for this last year and a half. We had one come within, what, 10 meters of a USB-52 a week ago. If that continues, you're going to get a repeat of the 2001 EP-3 incident, which a U.S. and a Chinese uh, air, military aircraft collided. And that was at a time when the U.S. and the Chinese were actually talking. If that happens without any crisis communication mechanism set up, we are going to be in the Cold War that Biden and Xi both said that they want to avoid. So a good move. We'll see if it gets, we'll see if it gets set up. They also, uh, in a way, this echoes IPEF because they also started some other dialogues and conversations. They agreed to have a dialogue on AI and you, uh, particularly the use of AI in autonomous weapons, which I think, which will probably end up being known, known as a Terminator agreement because that's pretty much what it's about. That's good. You know, we don't want to end up slaughtering ourselves. They also agreed to increase the number of flights back and forth, which has been a short point on both sides they went way down of, of course because of covid when you know everything stopped for a while but you know before covid we were averaging 340 flights a week to china and back collectively as of november 9th we had gone back up to 70 there's a long way to go and i think the agreement didn't put any number on what's going to happen next but there was an agreement to increase them now, that, of course, opens the door whether, whether any of any Chinese want to come here or any Americans want to go there. We'll see. But at least it opens the door to a resumption of, of normal travel. And that's a, a good sign, I think, because it gets back to normal of people talking to each other, which gets to the fifth decision, which to increase people-to-people exchanges. And it's not entirely clear what that means. I think it means basically approving more visas uh, because both sides have been cracking down on that. Chinese have been not granting visas and canceling vetoes visas for reporters or limiting them for reporters. The United States has responded in kind. Student travel in both directions has fallen off. Tourism has fallen off. So getting some of that back to normal would be uh, a good thing, partly because it just is soft power. It's not really power. It just increases mutual understanding. And finally, and probably the most important thing, uh, Xi Jinping hinted that the pandas are coming back. 
probably to San Diego, and but at least initially. So there's only four pandas left in the U.S., and they're in Atlanta. Uh, so it would be nice to get more pandas. And so if you, one concrete thing has come out of this, it'll be pandas. Well, there's a relief. Uh, trade in pandas has gone down substantially. So, but they were not covered by the Trump tariffs, as I recall. Good news all around. Yeah, and I, look, don't don't underestimate the importance of the resumption of educational and people to people exchanges. I know it often gets poo pooed in this town, but. It is an important, I think, buffer in, in great power competition. I have a former intern who reached out recently to ask about a uh, research project she was doing on a fellowship in China. She's one of, I think, fewer than 300 U.S. students right now in China. There's still over 200,000 Chinese students in the U.S., but 300 U.S. students in China is just abysmal. Yes, I've, uh, I'm a graduate of, of Johns Hopkins Science, and they have a center in Nanjing, uh, which I've actually visited. It's a nice, it's a nice building. And they really took a hit because of COVID because people uh, couldn't travel, but it was a wonderful, uh, and still is. It's, it's coming back. And it was a good curriculum idea. The, the, the American students took classes in Chinese. The Chinese students took classes in English, in the English language. Uh, and there was a lot of cross-cultural fertilization, which I think is a good thing. And uh, it would be nice to have it come back. I think it, it, we should also say a word about the tone of the, the meeting, which seemed to be, I'm not sure that cordial was is the right word. I mean, they weren't slapping each other on the back, although uh, I don't think she is really a backslapper under any yeah, circumstances. That, that would re be reminiscent of a Bill Clinton-Boris Yeltsin summit, but... Uh, yes, they don't do that. But it was, uh, everybody was respectful and polite and courteous. Uh, nobody, you know, threw shoes at each other across the table. And they agreed, disagreed on a number of things, apparently. Certainly, they disagreed on Taiwan. Um, and uh, I think they disagreed on, on uh, South China Sea issues and things like that, where where uh, we think they're being aggressive and they think we're the provocateur. And there weren't meetings of the mind reached on important things. But, you know, was, uh, there's nothing wrong with baby steps. Sure. Well, lest we leave it behind completely, APEC was included in Asia Week. Uh, APEC has, uh, has a fond spot in the heart of many business people. It's an organization that has been around for many years, has had a leader summit since 1993, and uh, that has continued on an annual basis. It's a very interesting grouping of economies who participate. And while it's non-binding in its approach to to um, to resolving matters, it does in, enhance cooperation. And slowly but surely, you can see economies becoming more open because of the APEC process. So there's a soft spot in the hearts of many business people who uh, who are responsible for their Asia, their company's Asia business, and use APEC very constructively. So they're meeting in San Francisco as well. Greg, I don't know what we can expect. What's interesting about the grouping now is both China and Russia are have long been, always been part of APEC. Yeah, so from the part of the world that I follow, this is just a great opportunity for everybody to come to the U.S. and strike a whole bunch of multi-billion-dollar deals with U.S. companies, which is which is fine. You know, we uh, the Indonesians got a uh, recommitment, I think, from Exxon for the two billion-dollar uh, CCUS carbon capture and storage agreement that they announced a year ago, plus another thirteen billion in petrochemical investments. Malaysians and Thais both got commitments from U.S. companies on semiconductor manufacturing. The Phil's got a, uh, a one, two, three civil nuclear agreement signed with the U.S. to pursue small modular nuclear reactors and an agreement to get some money from the uh, International Technology Security and Innovation Fund under CHIPS to boost their semiconductor manufacturing. So all of that's awesome. I'm not sure that any of that gets an APEC 
label on it, but I mean, that's the value that those leaders see in coming to APEC. These meetings tend to be kind of action forcing events to allow things like that that were in the works for a long time to come together because the leaders are all together uh, and they need something to do besides going to boring plenary sessions. And so they can have meetings and talk to each other and, and finish off these deals. I went through that when I was at the Commerce Department and, you know, the real work has all been done in advance and the deals are all right up ready, but somebody needs to have a, they want to have a ceremony. They want to have some attention. They want to finish it off. And it's when there's a leader there, that's even better. So uh, these are good things and hopefully they're good things for American business. APEC generally uh, and CSIS, uh, we didn't do it this year because the U.S. was the host and all the people were busy getting ready for San Francisco. But usually we do an Asian architecture uh, conference in the fall prior to uh, the, the summit and prior to the uh, the other East Asia summits that usually go on about the same time and talk about goals. And one of the things that has come out of that in the past is that I think a lot of people view APEC as uh, what they uh, business refers to as kind of a, a policy sandbox in the sense that it sounds, it sounds like recess for elementary school, but uh, it's consensus based. Things are not binding. Mm-hmm. So it's a place to kind of experiment with policy and propose ideas and some catch on, some don't. If uh, nothing happens right away, I mean, these things tend to take a while. They did uh, impressive work on uh, a few years ago on uh, tariffs on environmental goods and really set the stage for the WTO environmental goods agreement, which then went on to implode. But, you know, they, they what they did that was significant was they produced and reached more or less agreement on a list of items that ought to be eligible for zero tariffs because they were environmental goods. That was a foundation stone for what the WTO has gone on to do and which we may ultimately get back to, although this administration surprisingly hasn't been very interested in it. But it's the kind of thing that starts small and then grows. And so it's worth watching, you know, the, the things that come out of it uh, at on any given summit tend to be a little dry. There'll probably be, uh, I guess, some statement about sustainability because that's that's the U.S. goal is to, you know, how do we create a sustainable economy? And I'm not sure what that means, but uh, we'll, you know, the real question will be, will the succeeding chairs, because it's Peru next year after us, will they pick up on it and try to move those balls along or will they move to some other set of objectives of their own? Well, it's always good to reflect on the fact that some things are working, and there's no doubt there's still a very strong commercial interest in Asia by American international business people. It is where half the world's middle class lives. It is a a future economy much larger and more sophisticated and and more tuned to American products than it it is in the future than it is today. So it's a a forward-looking place. Uh, generally a place where there's uh, great commercial opportunity and relatively little geopolitical con- conflict. Not quite none today and, and perhaps more than a few years ago, but it's still, uh, it's still a place of great interest uh, commercially to the U.S. And it's, it's always useful when people can find constructive ways forward. And the, the bottom line on the, the, all three of the events may be that it was an opportunity for the United States to 
do a couple things. Uh, reassert its role in the region. Certainly make clear to Xi Jinping that we intend to be in the region, stay in the region, and, uh, uh, you know, maintain our, our presence there and a signal to the other countries, IPEF countries, that the United States wants to build relationships, wants to build partnerships, and intends to be uh, an economic part of the region. I mean, those of you that have listened to us for a while know that here at CSIS, most of us think that the right answer was uh, TPP, and then the second right answer was CPTPP, um, and we've been unable to convince the administration that those were good ideas. Uh, IPEF is, uh, it was always a pale substitute, and I think Greg explained why a, a few minutes ago. But uh, what we hear from the Asian countries, and Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, but what we hear from the Asian countries is, you know, it's third best. It's not really what we wanted. But if the Americans think it's important, we think it's important to have the Americans there. So we're going to help. I mean, it quite literally costs them nothing. Um, and it costs us nothing. And they hope that someday, under saner heads here in the U.S., it might actually turn into something. And that's what we're waiting for, because I, I wouldn't say we had insane heads in San Francisco, but uh, we didn't, uh, you know, we didn't have the tangible benefits that the IPEF partners have said from the beginning they were looking for. Uh, and it, I think, is because we didn't offer any. And what happened was exactly what Greg said and what we all said at, at the launch, that if we had nothing to offer, we were likely to get nothing. And that's what's happened. From pillar one, I still maintain yeah. pillar two to four might be value add, but it's not a trade agreement. Sure. Well, Greg, thanks for joining us again. And uh, it's unlike the trade guys to plan ahead on a going basis, but perhaps we can have you back next Asia week or when something exciting happens. Yeah. And in the absence of Andrew, I'll point out by the time you record the next one, we'll know the results of the Ravens game uh, that's happening between now and publication. Lots uh, of lots of potentially good news out there. So uh, do you want to put in a commercial for Ohio State, Scott, or are we going to skip that this uh, week? I, I, I'm too anxious till halftime of every game to uh, to comment on on the story. Yeah, but uh, the, the, I would point out that against Michigan State, Ohio State actually performed like Ohio State in the first half. Uh, Previous games, they tended to sleepwalk until they decided, hey, it's time to get, time to wake up and win. Uh, but uh, I don't want to jinx the team at this point. I don't want to be the the fan that does that. So thanks for the offer. You though. want to make a Ravens prediction? Uh, by the time this airs, we'll either be we'll either be walking into the playoffs. You don't uh, want to be wrong. So. I don't want to be wrong. Last week, uh, while playing the Browns, the Ravens played like the Browns. Let's hope that that doesn't happen against the Bengals. All right. Well, with that, uh, we will close and we'll uh, talk to all of you next week. Well, actually, we won't talk to all of you next week because yes. next week is Thanksgiving. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Yes. And we'll we'll be with you soon. And we could have done a session on turkey imports, but we didn't. We didn't do that and won't. What a missed opportunity. Well, save it for December. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.